Hey, Mike here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Dark Poutine early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Before we begin, I want to let you know about a new show from Curious Cast that I think you might enjoy. It's called Russia Rising. Putin's Russia has been accused of using internet trolls, hackers, and even assassins to influence the West. This new investigative podcast hopes to unravel the giant mystery with the help of those who know her best. Russian trolls, hackers, Putin supporters, and even a former Russian KGB spy. Join Europe Bureau Chief of Global News Jeff Semple on a journey to unravel how Russia has gone from tenuous ally to a potential global threat. Listen to Russia Rising for free at CuriousCast.ca or wherever you're enjoying Dark Poutine. Hey, welcome to Dark Poutine. I'm Mike Brown, creator and host. As we mentioned in our last episode, Scott is in Australia. So with me for this episode is my wife, Carol Brown. Say hello, Carol. Hello. Wow, it's actually Carol on the podcast. It's me. Are you looking forward to helping us out this week? I am so looking forward to it. Thank you for asking me to be the temp. (laughs) There you go. Carol actually is the reason that I ever got into podcasts in the first place. She's the one who was listening long before me so what i had no idea you are to blame for this whole thing there you go you're welcome (laughs) we'll start with the disclaimer the views information and opinions expressed during the dark poutine podcast are solely those of the producer and do not necessarily represent those of curious cast its affiliate global news nor their parent company chorus entertainment Dark Poutine is not for the faint of heart or squeamish. Listener discretion is strongly advised. We're not experts on any of the topics we present, nor are we journalists. We're two ordinary Canadians chatting about crime and the dark side of history. Let's get to it. Put on your toque. It's time to scarf down some Dark Poutine. This is episode 53, a sad tale about a young woman who disappeared from her home one warm summer night in 2005, and she was never seen alive again. Her disappearance left a neighborhood in fear. Her death broke the hearts of everyone who loved her. This is Alicia Ross, A Lily Among the Thorns. Oh. Yeah. So sad. That's what her mom called her. Aw. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry, Alicia. The story takes place in Thornhill, Ontario, near Toronto, an affluent middle-class suburb within the cities of Barkham and Vaughan. Thornhill is home to a broad range of ethnicities, namely Jewish, Chinese, Korean, Iranian, and Italian. Have you ever been to Thornhill? No. No, never. And you lived in Toronto for a while. Yeah, I lived in Toronto. I went to Markham. In Oshawa. Well, there you go. So Markham is part of Thornhill. Oh, okay. On the evening of August 16th, 2005, a mother, Sharon Fortas, a contract law clerk with the environmental law branch of the Gowlings firm, and her 25-year-old daughter, Alicia Ross, took the family dogs for a walk in Markham's nearby Pomona Mills Park. I love dog parks. 
Were there little pugs there? Little pugs? Well, I don't know if there were pugs there, but Sharon and Alicia had their dogs, Woody and Fraser. Oh. And they're two standard poodles, uh, and they were just bouncing around as uh, as Sharon and Alicia talked. Woody and Fraser. Where is where's that from? Fraser. No. That's, yeah, it is. It's a show. What? <laughs> You're as bad as Scott. It's from Sorry. Cheers. No. Woody. Woody Harrelson. I was thinking Frasier, the show. Yeah. Well, yes. Tossed salad and scrambled eggs. Was Woody on Frasier? No. Oh. Tossed salad and scrambled eggs? That's what the song is. Okay, I think it is. <laughs> All right, we're off to a It's a rockin' start. Woo! Sharon was proud of her adopted daughter, Alicia, born in February of 1980. Sharon and her first husband, the late Marvin Ross, adopted Alicia when she was still an infant. Alicia had kept Marvin's last name after he and Sharon split. Sharon's second husband, Julius, a self-employed accountant, treated Alicia as his own. Julius called her Pookie. After Sharon and Julius married, Alicia suddenly had seven brothers and sisters. Jamie, her adoptive brother, and step-siblings Trisha, Randy, Andrew, Sean, Stephen, and Adam. That's a lot of kids That's in one so house. Many. She was no longer the oldest, which took some adjusting. Soon they were all just another normal, large, suburban, blended family. That's like the Brady Bunch. It is kind of like the Brady Bunch. And actually, <clears throat> in my research, the Brady Bunch was one of Alicia's favorite shows. Aww. If you think about it, our names, Carol and Mike, were the names of the parents on the Brady Bunch. I know. It's, so... it's silly. Alicia was a pretty athletic and adventurous girl. She had chubby cheeks, blonde hair, and blue eyes that would be greener when she cried or laughed. Introduced to canoeing when she was 18 with her younger brother Jamie, she was instantly in love with the quiet beauty she'd seen on the first trip in the 30,000 islands of Georgian Bay. After that, in summer, Alicia went canoeing and camping as much as she could with friends and listened to the Beatles or Pink Floyd as she paddled along. They called it tripping. From AliciaRoss.ca, they were hooked. Next summer, it was Algonquin Park. As she got older and independent, Alicia tripped with Jamie and friends to various points in northern Ontario. Alicia eventually became a tripper at Camp White Pine, leading groups of children on canoe trips through the beauty of northern Ontario that she loved. Alicia had traveled all over. As well as her Canadian adventures, she'd been to Israel, Australia, and had even rafted the Amazon River during a recent trip to Peru. She was planning to see the jungles of Costa Rica next. She took kickboxing classes. She was fit, and she was a decent martial artist. She spent time strumming her guitar. Another pastime was watching The Amazing Race with her mom, Sharon. The Amazing Race is a cooperative couples-based contest that sees pairs flitting all over the globe, completing challenges with the hope of winning a large monetary prize. Alicia would often look at Sharon and say, We could do that. It hadn't been all roses for Alicia, though. She'd had a rough number of years through adolescence and beyond. Her birth father, Marvin, had taken his own life. Alicia was distraught and spent some time acting out afterward. Even more recently, the summer previous, Alicia's high school sweetheart, Greg Rogers, had been killed in a horrific automobile accident. These things seemed worlds away that night. Alicia was happy. She was being promoted at work. She'd gotten a job with Hewlett-Packard almost immediately after graduating from Concordia University with a non-computer-related degree in geography. 
Her relatively new relationship with 29-year-old boyfriend Sean Hine, a Tiger Direct computer sales rep, was ticking along smoothly. The two were in love and spent as much time together as possible. He was becoming a fixture around the Fortis home. Perhaps there'd be a match there. Sean was coming over that night to hang out and burn some CDs and play some pool in the basement of the large Fortis family home. Before Alicia and her mom left the park for home, Sharon said proudly and lovingly, This is your summer. You deserve it. Alicia was the epitome of somebody with a bright future ahead of her. Oh, this is horrible so far. Both her what? boyfriend and her dad yeah. died. And then she's like graduates from a tough university. Yep. So we're all ready. Okay, let's see what happens. Oh. Yeah. Oh. On returning home to the residence on Bronte Road... They met Randy, Julius Fortas's 32-year-old daughter who was crashing at the house till her new apartment was ready to move into. The three, Sharon, Alicia, and Randy, all chatted and had a few laughs until Sean Hine arrived. Sean and Alicia retired to her bedroom in the basement. There was lots of privacy there, and she had her own entrance. Around 11 p.m., Sharon went downstairs to borrow a black handbag that she and Alicia shared. Alicia found the bag and, handing it to Sharon, said, Thanks for sharing, Mummy. Little did Sharon Fortas know this would be the last interaction she would have with her daughter. Ugh, this, my heart is just broken. Yeah. Sean later told police that even though he had to work the next day, he didn't want to leave that night. His brother and his other roommate, although buddies, were not Alicia. At around midnight, Alicia walked Sean to his car, parked near her blue Toyota Corolla in the driveway, Alicia gave Sean a kiss, said, I love you, and waved and watched as Sean backed out of the driveway. Sean said his last vision of Alicia is her turning and walking back up the driveway toward the house. Sean also said that he called Alicia on his cell phone as he drove home. He wanted to say goodnight one more time. Alicia didn't answer. Maybe she fell asleep. Yeah. I've slept through lots of calls. <laughs> no kidding. You could sleep through a bomb. <laughs> In an earthquake. You actually have slept through an earthquake. I have. I also slept through a fire alarm. But anyway. It was odd, though, that she didn't answer. Yeah. He had only left a few minutes before, but he kept driving. Alicia didn't call Sean back that night. Sean stated that he still felt worried in the morning. He called Alicia's cell phone multiple times. No answer. Sean then called Alicia's direct line at work. She didn't answer there either after Sean tried a few times. Sean called the switchboard at Alicia's office, and he was told that Alicia had not yet come into work, and she hadn't called in sick either. Sean called 911 to report Alicia missing only nine hours after last seeing her. Next, he called Sharon and Julius at work. So, my question is, why didn't he call her parents first to see what was going on? Well, I guess that is a bit unusual, but if he didn't know what to do, and he's genuinely worried, yep. that might be just like, I'm going to call 911 and then call the parents. Bronte Road was quickly clogged with cop cars and police were already in the house searching when Julius and Sharon got home. Alicia's little blue car was still there in the driveway. It hadn't moved. Alicia was nowhere in the house, and there was no evidence of her in the yard. She was not on the property. In Alicia's basement apartment, cops found that she'd left her purse, car keys, cell phone, and an open pack of cigarettes. She always had these things with her if she was going to be away for any period. 
Alicia's bed was still made under a pile of clean laundry from the night before. She had not slept in it. Sharon also pointed out that Alicia had taken off her rings and placed them on the sink. She only did this as she cleaned up before she went to bed. In the backyard, searchers found Alicia's shoes, a glass, and a cigarette. The backyard gate swung wide open. The houses on that side of Bronte Road are bordered in the back by a thickly wooded ravine. So, this isn't good, especially the laundry on the bed, on the unmade bed. The unmade, so she didn't go to bed that night. I feel like she took her rings off and then was on her way to bed, and then she just never made it there. Well, what about the cigarette in the yard? Maybe she was out in the yard having one last smoke? Yeah, maybe. Before going to bed, and that's when whatever happened, happened. From Sharon Fortas's story on AliciaRoss.ca Detectives immediately entered our home and began questioning everyone, again and again and again. The property was sealed off. Can you provide us with a photo? I found one I thought she looked especially happy and sweet in, never realizing that that photo would forever be identifiable with the summer of 2005. I gave them the photo of Alicia happy and smiling. That night and the following days and nights, Alicia's picture appeared on every television. Newscasters were asking the public to help find Alicia Ross. That photo was no longer the face of a smiling young girl at a family wedding. It had become the face of a missing young woman. News crews descended on the quiet neighborhood, as did swarms of volunteers and official searchers, including canine units and helicopters. Everyone wanted to help find Alicia Ross. I think I would show up for something like that, too. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I would definitely want to pitch in. Neighbors were canvassed, and all of them claimed not to have seen or heard a thing. Alicia had vanished into thin air. The search continued as the days began to pass painfully slowly. Alicia's family waited by the phone for news. Police set up a command station at a nearby school, running the search for Alicia from there. There was no evidence to the contrary, so Alicia's family and friends believed strongly that she was still alive and being held captive somewhere. On August 19, 2005, Sharon put a new mezuzah on the door of their home and another leading to Alicia's room. Do you know what a mezuzah is? I thought maybe it was one of those hand-shaped things for protection? It's a parchment scroll off and inside an ornate casing and on which the Shema, or it's a Jewish important prayer of protection, is handwritten by an expert scribe. A mezuzah is mounted on the right side of the doorpost and designates the home as Jewish and reminding the Jews of God and their heritage. It's also a symbol of God's watchful care over the home. The placing of a mezuzah on doors of a home or office protects the inhabitants, whether they are inside or outside. Ah, uh, okay. So I guess that's why she placed one specifically on her daughter's door as well. The rain started on the 19th of August, too. This hampered search efforts. In fact, the wind and the rain were so bad at this time that it's been cited as Ontario's most expensive weather disaster. Oh, so any kind of evidence might have been... Blown away or washed away. On the afternoon of August 19th, a line of severe... Thunderstorms tracked eastward across southern Ontario from Kitchener to Oshawa, including the northern half of Toronto. 
In its wake, the storm left a trail of damage that, according to the Insurance Bureau of Canada, represented the highest insured loss of the province history, exceeding $500 million. And that's more than two and a half times Ontario's losses during the infamous ice storm of 1998 and the second largest loss event in Canadian history. You deal with insurance stuff, so you know that's going to be a mess. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So you've got this mess happening, resources going to that, and then more resources going toward this girl who's missing. So it had to be an awful time. People were interviewed and re-interviewed with no sign of Alicia. Police began to believe that Alicia had been abducted and that she had known her abductor. Only days into the case, America's Most Wanted profiled Alicia's case on their website. Alicia's Toyota Corolla was towed away for more intense forensic examination. Here's some global TV audio from a week after the search for Alicia began. The once frantic scene of the command post is now disturbingly quiet. No more volunteers helping scour the area for 25-year-old Alicia Ross, missing since last Wednesday. We are saddened to report that there has been no clues uh, uncovered. Police are now confining their focus to a forensic investigation and have had a car towed from Alicia's house, where she was last seen by her boyfriend. Alicia's mother, for the first time, acknowledging flat out she believes foul play is involved. And I'm praying for her strength, but I'm also praying that whoever has her finds his goodness and lets her go. Police are revealing little, but asking for lots. We are happy to announce the unveiling of a toll-free number where people can report any information that they may have. They can speak to somebody 24 hours a day, seven days a week at 1-866-287-5025. They're also asking people to call Crime Stoppers. Meanwhile, experts say the most likely probability at this point is that police are paying close attention to people Alicia knows. Women just don't disappear right from their houses at midnight to strangers, so we're not looking at a serial killer case here. We're not identifying to the public persons of interest, witnesses or suspects. The end of the ground search is not causing Alicia's mother to doubt the police. I know they're working 24-7 on this. They may have decided at this point they simply do not know where to look and they're hoping they're going to be led to where she is or that somebody will stumble across her by accident, or maybe that she'll just show back up again. And that's what Alicia's family is so desperately hoping for. I know she's coming back. I know. This is Global's Christina Stevens reporting. Sean Hine was questioned early on. As he was the last person claiming to see Alicia alive, he might be able to provide information about Alicia's whereabouts. There were questions about the timing and sequence of his calls to 911 and Alicia's parents. There were also claims that Sean was not cooperating with police. Adding to the Sean speculation fire, police searched the area near the townhouse that Sean had shared with his brother and a friend. Cops also canvassed the area to ask what Sean's neighbors knew about him. Here's some global TV audio from that day. Yes, it was pretty quiet today at the command post, but it was a different story here in the neighborhood where Alicia's boyfriend lives. Police officers were going door to door asking neighbors what they know about Sean Hine. Plainclothes officers were pounding on doors and taking notes as they talked to people in the neighborhood surrounding Sean Hine's house. 29-year-old Hine is Alicia Ross's boyfriend, 
and the last one to see her before she disappeared early last Wednesday morning. It's clear now where at least one part of the police investigation is going. Neighbors tell us investigators are asking them if they know Hine, if so, how well, and if they've seen anything unusual happening at this home. They just asked me when, if I knew if he put garbage out Wednesday morning, and I wasn't even here Wednesday, so I don't know. Empty cans line the street. Wednesday is garbage day here. The same day Alicia disappeared, the trash would have been put out and collected. Neighbors we talked to say they don't really know Hine at all. They are, they've only been here maybe three or four months, so, you know, you don't even, they go to work every day, you don't see them. They come home at night, you don't see them. They're quiet, no problems. Former Toronto Police homicide investigator Mark Mendelson says an investigation like this has to be done carefully and is time-consuming. So as difficult as it may be, people have to be patient. Although police did not hold a press conference today, they are still asking the public to come forward with tips to a special line or Crime Stoppers, and we are expecting more information from them tomorrow. So there you go. It's beginning to look like they're looking at somebody. Sean Hine had, in the eyes of many people in the public, become the focus of the investigation thanks to news reports and the rabid sleuths with a gut feeling on social media sites and threads dedicated to finding Alicia. Some claim to be positive that Sean Hine was the guy the police should be looking at. Sean was literally distraught and sometimes in his grief was confused in his speech. At one point he's reported to have said, I loved Alicia rather than I love Alicia. This supposed statement got a lot of play in social media speculations. Sean agreed to a media interview in which he showed reporters a Bible where he'd written, My one and only, my true love, took me long enough, but now I found you, 72905. And he said he was going to propose to Alicia next year. Another tidbit came out during this interview. On August 22, 2005, just days after Alicia had gone missing, Sean had been arrested for drinking and driving and spent a night in jail, and his license was suspended for 90 days. Police said that this was unrelated to Alicia's disappearance. Sean couldn't explain it away other than that he was upset. Once more, social media got wind of Sean's DUI, and he became a suspect number one in people's minds. The Toronto Sun and National Post ran many articles that inferred Sean Michael Hine knew more than he was saying. In late August, the National Post came right out and called Sean Hine uncooperative in the investigation. Here's the article. Missing woman's boyfriend refuses to cooperate with police. Thornhill, Ontario. Sean Hine, the last person to see Alicia Ross before she disappeared two weeks ago, has stopped cooperating with police and refuses to take a polygraph test. The missing woman's mother said yesterday, quoting police investigators, I'm sure he's feeling a tremendous sadness, Sharon Fortas said of the 29-year-old Mr. Hine, her daughter's boyfriend for six weeks prior to her disappearance. We all deal with grief in a different way. Investigators have told Ms. Fortas that Mr. Hine has not spoken to police since an initial interview he gave in the days following his 911 call reporting the disappearance. York Regional Police would not comment on Mr. Hine's level of cooperation, and Mr. Hine did not return calls seeking comment. But in recent phone calls to Ms. Fortas, Mr. Hine has told her how much he misses her daughter and asks how she is coping. What she can't understand, however, is why Mr. Hine, who she has just met a handful of times, can't put his grief aside and help police to find her daughter.
Ms. Fortas last saw Alicia Ross at 11 p.m. on August 16th when she descended to her basement bedroom. So, makes me wonder, because I didn't realize until this article that they'd only known each other for six weeks. Yep. And so why do you have a Bible? And uh, why was he already kind of thinking about getting married? Well, it sounded like he was in love with her. Yeah. But still, that's a little bit weird. But the police aren't making any comments. So it seems like the press kind of are digging this more than the police. I don't know. That's just what I get from this. On September 2nd, 2005, still with no breaks in the case, police began packing up the command post on the grounds of the school down the road. They said it was because school was about to start. It was clear, though, that they were stumped. Alicia had been missing without a trace for over two weeks. Some people were still out looking for Alicia, especially her friends and family. And they also continued receiving cards, letters, and offers of support, even from psychics. But where on earth was Alicia? On September 17th, the one-month anniversary of Alicia's disappearance, Sharon Fortas gave two more interviews, both with impassioned pleas to bring Alicia home safe. Three days later, on September 20th, 2005, the next-door neighbor of Alicia's family came forward. He had news about Alicia Ross, but it was the last thing anyone really wanted to hear. Unable to contain his horrific secret any longer, 31-year-old Daniel Sylvester had to unburden himself. With his lawyer at his side, Sylvester told police that he had accidentally killed Alicia on the night of her disappearance. I didn't see that coming at all. Nope. Oh my god. Cops had interviewed Daniel the month prior, right after Alicia's disappearance. He claimed he'd been inside watching TV that night and had heard nothing. At that time, the son of the recently deceased financial guru, Grant D. Sylvester, was not considered a suspect. In a Toronto Star article, Daniel Sylvester's lawyer said, His conscience got the better of him. He's feeling that the family next door needed closure. He feels that another person might have been unjustly prosecuted. Well, how noble of him. Uh, what? He just couldn't deal with the knowledge that he had done that anymore. No, he couldn't live with it. But how How did you accidentally kill someone? Let's find out. Okay. Daniel was a loner. He rarely went outside during the day. He felt overwhelmed around people and thus had no social life at all. He was a night owl, mostly, and would drive endlessly around at night in his mother's car while everyone else slept. It was vague what he had been up to on these nighttime forays, but police later found that Daniel had owned a pair of night vision goggles that were now suspiciously missing. Daniel claimed they hadn't worked right, and he'd gotten rid of them. What do you think he was doing with those? You know what he was doing with He's those. He was peeping. Yeah, creep. Daniel had ongoing issues with depression, anxiety, and had been diagnosed with OCD, but he took no medication anymore. He said Prozac and Paxil were the things that he'd taken between 94 and 97, but he found the side effects unbearable. He dropped out of high school as soon as he could, and he'd never had a girlfriend, nor had he had any employment. His family just took care of him financially. 
He even said that although he knew a big family lived next door, he wasn't sure of people's names. He said he thought Alicia's name was Trisha. But here he was only weeks later admitting to killing Alicia Ross. What? Well, I don't know all our neighbors either. I only know the ones that used to work with. <laughs> uh, but the other stuff, yeah, this is not good. I don't have goggles or anything like that, so this is not good. He told police he'd originally placed Alicia's remains in the forest close to Manila, Ontario, near where his family had a cottage. He said he later moved them another 54 kilometers away to Koboconk, another summer getaway community. Sylvester agreed to take police to Alicia's remains. When they found the bones, and other evidence scattered about there, Daniel Sylvester was arrested and charged with the second-degree murder of Alicia Ross, of course pending the identification of the remains found. Sylvester was taken back to the Newmarket Police Station for more questioning. The police videotaped their interview with Daniel Sylvester. He reenacted the crime as he explained his version of what had happened that night. Sylvester told detectives, Basically, I killed her. She died at my hands. I am responsible for the disappearance of Alicia Ross, and I am responsible for her death. Sylvester's story was that he met Alicia on the walkway between their two homes just after midnight. Presumably, this was just moments after she'd kissed Sean goodnight. Alicia, apparently startled by Daniel's presence, lashed out, according to him. Daniel claimed Alicia said, What the fuck are you doing here, loser? Daniel claimed that all the years of bullying, depression, and anxiety after being called a loser in school boiled over at that moment. Daniel said he had slapped Alicia with an open hand across the face, and after she grabbed his shirt, he forced her down to the concrete walkway. He said, he was, he said she was fighting the whole time, scratching and kicking at him. Daniel put his knee on Alicia's sternum and held her there, applying all his weight. He then smashed her head off the concrete several times, holding his hands on both sides of her head. Nice fella. He said it was then that she stopped moving. He stated coolly, I knew she was seriously hurt and almost likely dead. I knew that I had caused serious bodily injury. I panicked. He claimed he paced around a bit, considering 911, but it was too late. He was afraid of what would happen next. Well, I'm sorry to sound like literal Jim, but that is not an accidental killing. No. That's not an accident. You... Well, it was an accident because she triggered him. That's not an accident. <laughs> exactly. An accident was like you're walking with a knife, you trip and accidentally hit, stab the person. That's more believable than this. That's And why on earth would she react like that if she kind of recognized him? I think... I just find it hard to believe this whole scenario. Lies. Well, there you go. We'll find out more later on as the forensics do their work and look into whether or not Daniel's story holds up. Daniel then claimed he dragged Alicia into the garage in his house. She was bleeding from the head. Police asked Daniel if he'd had any sexual interaction with Alicia that night any time before or after, and he said no. I didn't rape her or anything like that. I didn't fondle her. I didn't do anything in a sexual manner. 
I didn't have sex with the body. It's very specific. Yeah, that's exactly what I didn't do. I didn't do those things that you didn't really accuse me of doing. What? Yeah. He says he left her laying there and went inside to shower. He stated that after 45 minutes, he came back, wrapped Alicia's body in the blanket, and stuffed it into his mother's car. He used the towels to clean up the blood on the garage floor and put the towels in the garbage bags in the car as well, along with Alicia's clothes. He drove Alicia's body and the evidence up to Manila and dumped everything in the woods. Daniel returned home, and in the dead of night, he said he cleaned up the blood on the pathway and more of it in the garage. Daniel also said that he had visited Alicia's remains several times, and after becoming nervous that they might be found where they were, that's when he moved them to Kobolkonk. Forensics teams began to comb for evidence at the crime scenes around the Bronte homes and Daniel's two dump sites in Cottage Country. The evidence they found didn't quite match the story that Daniel was telling. Surprise! Bits of Alicia's remains were found at both the Manila and Kobaconk locations. After five weeks in the woods, and after two moves, all that remained of Alicia's body fit into two plastic bags weighing a total of 11 pounds. They contained bones, a piece of mummified skin, a tank top, and some other items. This is horrible, especially... Yeah, when he's moving the body and stuff. Yeah, horrible. After the arrest of Daniel Sylvester, the Toronto Sun issued a bit of an apology to Sean Hine. The apology indicates that the public's desire for more is what drove them towards Sean Hine in the first place. Too little too late, Sean was being looked at as Canada's answer to Scott Peterson, and very unfairly so. You kind of believed it was him too, didn't you? Yeah, I did for a bit, but then, I don't know, it seemed too much the press was more put into it and the police just weren't commenting. The coroner determined that Alicia had not been dismembered, but that was no solace to the family who had to grieve the loss of their much-loved daughter. As Alicia's funeral took place on October 7th, almost two months after Alicia's death, Daniel's actions wounded the family spiritually as well. Jewish custom is to bury the deceased within 24 hours. Embalming or any other treatment of the remains are against Jewish law because a body is to be buried whole without being tampered with. Yeah, that's horrible. Reading that and listening to you say it, those poor parents. Over 1,500 people attended Alicia Ross' funeral. They packed the Beth Emmeth by Yehuda Synagogue in North York. All came to grieve for Alicia and with her family. Sharon's eulogy for Alicia was heartbreaking. You can find the full text of it on aliciaross.ca. This site I've mentioned before, but it's one that Sharon maintains in Alicia's memory. She said Alicia was a lily among the thorns, and she was an adorable and good baby a precocious toddler, a blossoming preteen, and a terrible, terrible teenager. <laughs> yeah. Weren't we all? <laughs> Same. Sharon related some of the family's favorite memories of Alicia and finished with a lullaby and the words, Good night, mein Sisa Kind, my sweet child.
Here's some audio from Global News on the day of the funeral. Throughout her nightmare, Alicia Ross's mother stayed strong. For the first time today, that wall came down, her tears flowing publicly. My heart breaks for her. A loving hug from her husband and Alicia's stepfather, trying to comfort a mother who lost a daughter tragically. A casket carried by her six closest male friends, Alicia called simply the boys. Her little brother Adam, not even a teen, read an email she sent him at camp just one day before she disappeared. And is devastated he'll never be able to share his stories from camp with his big sister. Then her mother took the podium and remembered a camping trip in Algonquin Park. Alicia told her mother, quote, it doesn't get any better than this. Alicia's mother is so strong, I, I, can't, I can't believe that she has the strength that she does. The heartbreaking story of a girl fondly called the girl next door in a eulogy by her friends, allegedly murdered by the boy next door. 31-year-old Daniel Sylvester, who turned himself into police five weeks after her disappearance, his lawyer saying he had a conscience. There's no comfort in that. There's only comfort in what was. Whatever happened as far as the accused is concerned is business that will happen after. Today was all about Alicia. Every parent and every sister and every brother and every friend who, uh, uh, you know, who have, have relationships with one another understand what this pain is all about. As the victim's stepsister said in her eulogy, Alicia didn't deserve this. This may give some closure, but most hope... This all comes to a close with a, I guess, with a conviction of whoever did this. I don't know why he did it or for what reason, but I just hope that the verdict is the right one at the end of the road. This is Global's Catherine McDonald reporting. It was reported that Sean Hine had not been welcome at the funeral as he'd been uncooperative with police, but I couldn't verify that. Hmm. That's sad. Yeah. The whole thing is... It's just, it really is heartbreaking. It just sounded completely senseless. As the evidence was collected and pieced together, a much more brutal scene emerged than the one initially painted by Daniel Sylvester. According to forensic investigators, there were 33 fractures to Alicia's skeleton mostly to her ribs. These would not have been caused by someone simply applying pressure. Experts found that extreme force had to be applied multiple times to replicate the injuries. Daniel would most likely have had to have driven his knee into Alicia with brutal force several times. Two of Alicia's nasal bones were broken near the time of her death as well. The open-handed slap would not have caused these injuries. They were probably caused by a closed fist. Alicia's breastbone was split down the middle, and some of her vertebrae in her neck were also broken. Experts described Alicia's injuries as something one would see in victims of fatal car or plane crashes, even in war zones. What on earth? It sounded like he was in a frenzy. Her actual cause of death, due to the decomposition of her body, was undetermined. Daniel had said that he stripped Alicia while her body lay in his garage because her clothes were torn. And he said, quote, I didn't like the looks of that. I didn't want that to be seen like that because someone might infer exactly what someone is going to infer about that. What, like the creepy guy next door that lives in his mom's basement would do something awful after he beat the crap out of a lady? Like rape her? Yeah. Yeah. He was adamant that his motives were in no way sexual. Again, the evidence indicated otherwise. 
Daniel's semen was found on pieces of Alicia's clothing that had been recovered. Daniel had a story here too, and it's a graphic one. It's disgusting. He said that after dumping Alicia's body, but before disposing of the towels in Alicia's clothes further away, he had to calm himself down. I started getting the tingling feeling, the burning feeling of panic setting in, and telling myself it was going to be okay wasn't going to do it. So in order to alleviate the panic, I tried to, you know, calm down. I masturbated. In July of 2007, Daniel Sylvester's trial for the second-degree murder of Alicia Ross began. His fate was to be in the hands of an eight-man and four-woman jury. The prosecution had really done their homework, too. Even though Sylvester's defense attorneys tried to have some of his utterances at the police department on the first day expunged, the court ruled that these things he said were entirely admissible. They presented a case alleging that Daniel Sylvester was a depraved, chronic masturbator who'd been prowling the neighborhood at night as a peeping Tom with his special goggles. He admitted to psychiatrists that he had horrible thoughts of jumping out of the bushes and raping. Okay, well that I believe. Yeah, and that's what he did. Even a defense-appointed shrink said that Daniel thought Alicia was a pushy and inconsiderate bitch because she stared at his elderly mother two weeks earlier. Well, that's a good reason to kill somebody. What do you think? None of this makes sense. It's like a 14-year-old boy trying to, like, tone down the truth a bit to see if he can get away with something. Yeah, that's what it sounds like to me, too. Alicia and Daniel, as far as everyone knew had never spoken in the seven years they'd lived next door to one another. Sean, who testified by satellite from Florida, where he's since gone to start a new life, said that he believed Daniel had been watching he and Alicia as they'd been intimate that evening, and perhaps on others as well. The defense's position was that Daniel had been provoked into killing Alicia by her calling him a loser. The word they claimed triggered an uncontrollable rage. Yes, he'd killed Alicia, but without intent. They hoped for a finding of manslaughter. Who, what jury would go, oh yeah, that sounds right. That's the worst. It's a pretty shitty defense. <laughs> He's like, well, it was in cell, guys. I think that as well. The jury went away to consider the facts, and three hours and 45 minutes later, they'd finished. Daniel Sylvester was found guilty of second-degree murder, and an automatic 25-year sentence was imposed, although parole eligibility would be set later in July. Here's a global news report containing some clips of Sharon Fortas speaking out after the verdict. Her name was Alicia Ross, and in a very few violent moments on August 17, 2005, her life ended in the hands of this man, 31-year-old Daniel Sylvester. The pain of our loss will never go away. It is with us every day. But you believed in the truth and delivered a verdict that now helps all of us to move forward to the day when we hope memories will be cherished happy times rather than painful reminders of how Alicia died. Alicia's mother, Sharon Fortas, broken but pleased with the jury's verdict of second-degree murder for Sylvester, a depressed man who the defense said accidentally killed Alicia in a fit of rage after she called him a loser, a name he had endured through childhood, a story Alicia's family never believed. A composed story, craftily rehearsed 
and put forward so cooperatively on video so as to mask itself as a remorseful confession. For Alicia's family, the last two years have been trying. When Alicia first disappeared, a massive search began in York Region. Five days later, Alicia's boyfriend, the last person to see her alive, became a person of interest. Then the investigation became that of murder. And on August 26, the case was aired on America's Most Wanted. Nearly a month after Alicia vanished, Sylvester, her neighbor, turned himself in and led police to her remains in the Kawarthas, clearing the boyfriend of any involvement. Almost two years later, Sylvester faces a jury, which in the end rejects his manslaughter plea and finds him guilty of second-degree murder. And to all the witnesses and experts who put forward the truth as best it could be found amid a pile of bones that once was a very beautiful woman. For Global News, this is Carolyn McKenzie reporting. Daniel Sylvester's piece of, piece of junk. Oh, yeah, he's just the picture of him. He does look like one of those incel guys. You know, I was called a lot, like I had buck teeth when I was a kid. And people called me Bucky Beaver and, and you know, said I could eat an apple through a picket fence and all those kind of things. I got pushed around. I cried. I got I got bullied, too. I was a bully. Everybody has done different degrees of it thought if somebody was to stop me on the street and call me Bucky Beaver today I don't think <laughs> I would lose control and kill them well you don't look like Bucky Beaver your teeth are great now no one would ever call you that <laughs> but you know like even if they did I really don't think that I would it's lose not it. gonna put you into a fit of rage yeah. um the only thing that I thought about afterward is maybe she had seen him around creeping around before and if she did say that to him call him a loser it's because he was being creepy before and she saw him and she was afraid yeah yeah Even exactly there's a lot of different things that I think about this particular case I wonder if she wasn't smoking in the backyard you know having her last cigarette of the day and he had turned the light off because there's apparently a motion sensor light in the pathway between their two homes and maybe she heard something maybe and maybe she knew he had been like you say maybe she knew he had been creepy before and went over there to confront him yeah. and said hey what are you doing here you loser yeah like what are you up to and maybe he had his stupid goggles on at the time <laughs> looking like Buffalo Bill from uh, Silence of the Lambs. But maybe that was it. Like, maybe she confronted him and she caught him. Yeah. You it, know? I wouldn't be surprised. She caught him out, staring at her, maybe cranking one out. And he, yeah, totally. And he could have, they thought maybe, he, or the boyfriend thought maybe he had been watching them as well yeah. together. Like, ugh. Yeah. You so, are. Yeah. So he's a creep. And I think that's when the confrontation started is when she went over to confront him because she probably wasn't afraid of him because she was a martial artist, right? Like she was a kickboxer and she was into martial arts and she, she clearly didn't go down uh, easily. He said that she kicked and bit and fought. Plus the injuries she endured, like you have to be crazy out of your mind to inflict that on someone. Yeah. So like I say, I think the reason that he was like that because she was fighting him. Yeah. You know, and he being the incel, exactly what he probably was or is, or I don't care if you hear <laughs> this piece of crap, you're a piece of crap, but <laughs> we're talking about you. We're talking about you, Daniel Sylvester, and we think you're garbage, <laughs> but, uh, isn't that one of their worst nightmares though? Is like women laughing at them. Oh, absolutely. It is. <laughs> 
I kind of like it when you laugh at me. <laughs> laughing it, at them, not with them. Well, it We're makes me think I'm funny them. when you laugh. Oh, come on, you're funny. You're funny. That's exactly right. Like, she's like, what are you doing, you loser? And yeah, if he's got that incel mindset, that's absolutely an unforgivable offense. No. Nothing about his internet history, though. It was 2005, but maybe well, the lawyer kept that all hush-hush. I don't know if incels were even a thing then. That Elliot Roger guy hadn't even happened yet then, I don't think. Yeah, maybe they weren't organized. He was just, like, alone, kind yeah. of wolfish. Yep. In July, Daniel Sylvester was sentenced to life in prison with no parole for 16 years. However... So this fine gentleman will be up for parole in 2021, which is actually quite soon, yeah, to tell you the truth. Just around the corner, really. Perhaps he will be in there a little longer. I, I have a feeling he won't be getting out early. Daniel's team did file an appeal on his behalf, but it was later dropped. And like I said, I hope he sits in there for quite a long time and does his full 25. I don't know. I don't know. They, he doesn't have any history, so they can't say he's a dangerous offender. So this guy is going to get out of jail one day. But even if his lawyers just dropped the appeal, even they knew, ugh. So if he stays for the full 25, for the full 25, he'll still only be 58 years old when he gets out. That's not an old man. So he still could potentially be a danger to people in the community for sure. Especially if he's not taking any treatment or anything like that and he's still has the same mindset that he did when he went in. Maybe his mom's basement's still free. So I guess that's it for uh, this episode of Dark Poutine. The story part, at least. That's Carol's contribution <laughs> to the show. She just cackling away. My contribution felt minimal. I was confused uh, part of the time. Well, no, you did a good job. Uh, hung in there. Um, I don't know. I don't know. As far as my temporal goes, I don't think Scott has anything to worry about. <laughs> Scott, Scott, Scott's job is just fine. Scott just did an air fest. Yes. <laughs> yes. Some crazy stuff has been happening this week. Uh, yeah, I would say so. My Favorite Murder mentioned us in their live show when they were here in Vancouver. We got some trickles of people from the My Favorite Murder show. And the Murderinos are very rabid fans. They're excellent. Excellent fans. But when they posted the show this week, holy crap. <laughs> yep, we got messages at six in the morning and we started listening and wow. Yeah, I can't believe how many listeners have come to us from My Favorite Murder. So Georgia and Karen, thank you, thank you, thank you very much. So great, thank you. And your fans, the Murderinos are awesome. They've been so nice to us. Uh, we really appreciate all the love that, that we're getting so far. Holy smokes. And they're filling up the Yumber Yard. And they are filling up our Yumber Yard. If you folks are listening now and you haven't listened to My Favorite Murder yet, do us a kindness and go listen to them because I think their show is pretty great. And it's crazy listening to their live shows and hearing people, that many people yelling and screaming and cheering. I can't even imagine. We have between 10 and 20 people show up for our meetups. I can't imagine something that size. I can't even fathom it. Yeah, filling up a whole theater? That's amazing. Yeah. So good on you, folks. Thank you again, Georgia and Karen. And thank you again, Murderinos. Welcome to Dark Poutine. And Scott will be back next week. And he'll gush, too. He will. He's gushing right now in Australia. Well, yeah, because Georgia said, I'm sure rolling her eyes, Scott is my best friend now. <laughs> 
No, she said it nicely. She did say it nicely, but I'm certain she rolled her eyes. Inside? Nah. Yeah. Well, she doesn't know him that well. I guess maybe she does. She, maybe. It's her best friend. Before we go, we want to give shout outs to our new patron patrons. You know what Scott does? He says thank you after I say their name kind of thing. Okay, so. I'll do it. I can say thank you. You can do that. Okay. So first up, thank you to Ricky Garcia from Plainfield, Illinois. Oh, thank you, Ricky. Exactly. Thank you to Diane Mills O'Reilly from Floral Park, New York. Floral yeah. Park sounds like a nice place. That sounds like a great place. Diane, you're lucky. <laughs> uh, Katie Tapley. And she's from Leeds, West Yorkshire, in Great Britain. Oh, United Kingdom. Hello. Pip, pip, cheerio. <laughs> Are we supposed to speak British now? I don't think so. I don't know. Katie, thank you. My friend Richard Paffley was from Yorkshire, and he used to say, I'd say, how do you spell your name? And he'd say, it's Paffley, P-A-F-F-L-E-Y. <laughs> I also like Charlie. Oh, Charlie. Oh, Stop Charlie. it, Charlie. Stop it. He bit his finger. <laughs> Charlie. Exactly. Autumn Furlong from Winnipeg, Manitoba. Thank you, Autumn. Lovely. I Autumn. always like the name Autumn. That is a good name. Brittany Watson uh, from Ashley, Michigan. I had, uh, she emailed me this week. Oh, thanks, Brittany. And Tina M. King from Norfolk, Massachusetts. <gasps> Norfolk, Mass. Norfolk. Thanks, Tina. Make sure you put on a sweater <laughs> when you park the car in Harvard Yard. Very nice. I know. I right? think I went back British. Sorry. You did. You're like Gibby from like Gibby. Uh, True Crime all the time. <laughs> I think my British is better than his, though. And you were you were probably as rude as the captain from True Crime Garage, too. Hey. Huh? Yes. Yeah. Well, I didn't mean to be rude. I love the captain. The captain's <laughs> awesome. I listen to those guys every week. I know. know. I list with you. <laughs> if you want to support the show, you can do so at patreon.com slash darkpoutine. Or for a one-time donation, you can send us some donut money via P... 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 Oh, oh PayPal. <laughs> I said PayPal again. <laughs> at our email address, darkpoutinepodcast at gmail.com. Check out our website, www.darkpoutine.com for show notes and for other cool stuff. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Just search for Dark Poutine. Tell your friends. Come to the Umber Yard on Facebook. That's our closed group. Come to the Umber Yard. The Umber Yard. I've met so many nice people on the Umber Yard. I love it there. Yeah, it's great. You can subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcatcher like iTunes Podcast, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spotify, or wherever you get your on-demand audio. Next week, Scott will be back for our holiday episode. And Yay. we're doing another criminal profile this this time, and we're not going to tell you who. He's back from his walkabout with his didgeridoo. Well, I hope he keeps his didgeridoo to himself. <laughs> no, I want him to bring in his hand luggage on the plane, and I want him just to remember on airplane when the, <laughs> the nun was bringing her, her guitar through the airplane, hitting everyone on the back of the head. Bam, bam, bam. That will be him with the didgeridoo. Okay. I just had such a good image. Now that you've finished up this helping of dark poutine... <laughs> Grab yourself a double-double and an Nanaimo bar for dessert. You've earned it. Until next week, don't forget to be a good egg and not a bad apple. Bye. Bye. <laughs> That's RuPaul. Yeah. Mm, I love RuPaul. RuPaul.